likely not a resurrection, and why is that? Because Lazarus would later die again. Uh, it was not the final, the eternal resurrection, so sometimes we call it a resuscitation. But this is on the back end of that. Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, this is right, he's six days before his crucifixion, really. He came to Bethany where Lazarus was. Lazarus is now resurrected, resuscitated, still living. The one Jesus raised from the dead. So they made him a supper there. Martha was serving, the ever practical Martha. And Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with Jesus. It was an astounding scene. Mary, Mary was the contemplative one, the personality-wise, the total opposite of her sister, but both, both honoring the Lord in their own ways. She took a pound of very costly, genuine spikenard ointment. All of this are, these things are hints of her social status. This was very costly. She anointed the feet of Jesus. We know from Matthew and Mark, she also anointed his head, but John mentions this for a reason. She wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the ointment. But then there's always a party pooper and contrast between light and darkness. But Judas Iscariot, the one who's shortly going to go to the priest, Sanhedrin, and offer to betray Jesus. Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, was intending to betray, and he barked. Words not in there, but that's what he did. Sat, they didn't sit back in their chairs. I'll explain that later. Oh, my gosh. Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Sounds so pious. Now, he said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because, frankly, we might add, he was a thief. And as he had the money belt, the money box, guess what? He used to pilfer it for what was put in it. Jesus therefore said, ladies, you're going to like this. Let her alone. Don't be hassling that woman. He said that in order that she should keep it for the day of my burial. That's what's going on here. She doesn't know it, but that's what's happening. Spirit of God is moving her. For the poor you always have with you. Take note of these things. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. The great multitude, therefore, of the Jews learned that he was there. What great multitude? At that time of years, those of you who are skeptics, look up Flavius Josephus on your Google. Don't do it now. Flavius Josephus, the famous Jewish historian, who was contemporary. And he says, in one place, a million and one Jews. 
from all over the world and there were in Jerusalem at that time. Another place, he says, maybe two million. Those of us who've been over that shake our heads because we can't even see where you could fit them all in. But he was there and we weren't. So there was a ton of human beings from all over the world in Jerusalem. Some of them had heard about this Jesus of Nazareth. They're very curious. They were there big time. Great multitude, therefore, of the Jews learned that he, this Jesus figure, he was there. They came not only for Jesus' sake, but they might also, oop, he's a tourist attraction, that they might see Lazarus. They had heard about it. The talk was all over Jerusalem, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. But on the dark side, always the dark side, wherever Jesus is, the chief priest took counsel that they might put Lazarus to death also. Okay, they want to get Jesus. Now they've got to put a hit on somebody else. Lazarus was too much of an attraction, and he might feed into the narrative that he had been raised. They knew he had been raised, but they had to put a stop to that for reasons that I've already explained. Because on account of him, this Lazarus, many of the Jews were going away. Here's the problem. They were believing on Jesus. That was not good. Well, when we piece these three accounts, Matthew, Mark, and John, together, we find that these people were in the home of Simon the leper. Simon the leper was apparently a leper that Jesus had healed. He is apparently very wealthy uh, because he had a home big enough to accommodate Jesus and his disciples and the sisters, Lazarus, and everybody. It was a suburb of Jerusalem, as I pointed out, which happened to be just about a mile and seven-tenths just east up over the Mount of Olives. Everything as it always is, folks, how many times I've stressed this, was a matter of divine timing. Your life, my life, their life. God is at work. He's got a clock, as it were. Everything is time. The time of Jesus' crucifixion is approaching. Jesus would call it his hour, his hour to be glorified. It was an hour when he was humiliated, but also the hour in which he was magnified along with his resurrection. It's approaching in just days. Jesus wants to be near Jerusalem on this occasion, but he's come in from his private retreat across Jordan. He wanted to get out of Dodge. There was too much heat there. He was in lockstep with the timing of his Father in heaven. Now it's time to move out from across Jordan. It's time to move into the environs of Jerusalem and to be there and to be near. Now he and his disciples, as they return from across the Jordan River for that kind of hidden retreat, they want to make a stopover again at Bethany where he had these devoted, grateful, and hospitable friends. He had not seen Lazarus since his resuscitation. 
as we would expect his friends, verse 2, they made a dinner for him there. Martha was serving and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him. Do you know what that reclining bit is? Bear with me. I may need help here. David, be ready. You be ready. But in those days, just like for you to get the picture, it's not the essence of things, just get the picture. They didn't walk up, pull up a chair and sit down. Oh, you see, you see here. No, there was a mat. <laughs> you be still. There was a mat. Mat for everybody. Oh, be still. I'll be all right. And they got down and they laid on their elbow and the food was right here. And it was served. Kind of weird, isn't it? That's the way it was. I'd have never gotten enough food if that would have been the case. <laughs> Maybe that's a good dietary approach. I don't know. Anyway, let's see if I can get this knee working. Come on now. Get up here, Sean. <laughs> Make yourself useful. Thank you, guys. There was a day when I could just pop up. These are days when I can just pop down. <laughs> anyway, that's the way they ate. And they reclined on one elbow, and that was dinner. Anyway, they made dinner for him. Martha was serving. I mentioned this two or three Sundays ago. Those two ladies, their personalities were absolutely distinct. They both loved the Lord. But some of you, that's the way you show your love for the Lord. And that's the way you show your love for one another. You uh, you get out, you're handsy. You get out and serve and bake and make things and do things like that. Now, people can do things for the wrong motives. But some of you, that's your way. You're not huggy-kissy and, you know, sit around like this. That was Mary. It was real. It was genuine. But Martha sometimes got aggravated, as we know from the other text. She sometimes got aggravated because her sister wouldn't come and help with it. She even said to Jesus, would you tell her to get her little hiney in here and help me with dinner? <laughs> and Jesus says, Martha, what you're doing is good. What she's doing, that's really the better part, to come in and sit at my feet and learn. But they both love the Lord with all their heart. So Martha was the more forward, the more practical, and Mary was distinctly impractical. <laughs> but she loved the Lord. That's just the way she was. There's nothing wrong with that. I have some comments here, which I'm going to bypass. Move on. In the course of the dinner, Mary, taking a pound of very costly, pure nard oil, anointed the feet of Jesus. And then, this is amazing, she wiped his feet with her hair. We know from the other narratives she also poured some of it on his head. Why does John say the feet? There's no contradiction. She did both. Because he wants to emphasize a pure humility of it all. And there's another instance of that happened in Galilee. That's remarkable. 
This was an act of humility and pure devotion on Mary's part. And it stands in stark contrast to the selfishness, the pride, and the wicked conspiracy on the part of Judas and the religious authorities who were looking to take him out, arrest him, put him away. Well, party poopers. At that point, verse 4, but, there's always a but where Jesus is. Always a but where his spirit is working. There's the light side and there's the dark side. And here comes the dark side right from the core of his disciples. It was Judas, but it turns out it wasn't just Judas. They're going to have to have a mid-course correction. Of course, it's not going to work with Judas. Let me stop right here and let you think about something. When I was in Naples, Florida, probably 10 years ago, maybe less, I had a dream. Sounded like Martin Luther King. (laughs) Not the same subject, but I had a dream one night. And when you have some of these dreams, you start thinking, is that just a dream or is that more than a dream? Well, probably more than, probably less than, less meaningful than I thought at the time. But it was a, it was not one of these weird dreams. It really hit me pretty hard. And I want to put it in the context of what comes next year. I must have been in a spiritual frame of mind. And in that mentality, I got to thinking about our church and Catholic churches and all of that. I don't know how I got there, but you were in our dreams, we sometimes don't know how we got there. Where did that come from? (laughs) It was one of these. And I got to thinking it was a more rational dream than a lot of them. I got to thinking about Catholic churches such as you would see in Europe and in Rome, great cathedrals. inspiring and I thought in this dream their problem is I said it was kind of a rational dream we've got a problem they've got a problem their problem is that they're big on the the otherness the transcendence of God and that shows up in their architecture and it's majestic and it's Wellifying. Is that sensational? And then I look at the way we, on the Protestant side of the ledger, call it whatever you want to. We, uh, this is really uptown compared to many. We're meeting in a gymnasium. And we don't mind that. But our accent tends to be on the eminence of God, which means that he's close. And we like that. We like to think of God being close and near and dear, not denying the other, the transcendence of God, the otherness of God. And in that dream, I said, Lord, it's got to be both. 
And then I woke up from the dream. It's really kind of far out. But I woke up and it it hit me real hard. I said, and I'll show you how all this relates to this. You know, because I've been praying for a megaton gift for years. It's not likely to happen, but if somebody would give us and give me authority over the... A many million dollar gift, like 40 million, 50 million dollar gift. What I would like to do is build an absolutely unique facility. A facility, if I could find the architect who had the spiritual sense, an architect who could build a building that would project that transcendence and yet create an environment in and around it that also projects its eminence. Now, I wouldn't know how to do that. But get the whole picture in one. I would love that. Well, (laughs) that's never happened. And that is totally, totally unlikely to happen. It was just a dream, but I had it. How does that relate to this? It did occur to me at the time. Well, if I would go there to Lake Oswego, I'm assuming that I had the authority and the backing of the church elders and the congregation, which you would have to have. And providing you got city permits, you could, we could build that facility. But I could just hear the Judases all over the neighborhood. Oh my gosh, what are they doing with all that money? That money could be given to the poor. And look what they're building with that money. You see a problem with that? I ask you. Jesus' disciples were having a little problem. Would you be shamed and embarrassed if the public were saying, that money ought to be given to the poor? And we were trying to build a a building that would honor and glorify God. That would be just exactly the right place to worship. You can worship God anywhere. Well, Judas, he was a hypocrite, of course. He didn't want the coffers to be empty because he liked to pick at them. So he said, Man, that's expensive stuff she's pouring on his head and on his feet. What a waste. That could have been sold. Here's how expensive it was for 300 denarii. I'm bringing the synoptics in with this. A denarius was one day's wage, almost a year's worth of earnings for the average man. I can't believe this lady has wasted this stuff. That's exactly where many people are. Something's wrong with that picture, they say. Judas said that. We know from the synoptic narratives that some of the other disciples joined in. Judas was influential, believe it or not. They say, yeah. Yeah, that's right. 
That's not a good thing she's doing. Foolish woman. Well, it's a question we often have to consider because there's often a tension. When we as Christian people, when we take our monies, we sometimes, we think, have an either-or choice. Go worship in a shoebox and take all that money and distribute it as alms or charity to poor people. Somehow to a lot of people that sounds more righteous, that sounds more pious, that makes them feel better about themselves when we do something like that. But you know what? There's something wrong with that picture and there's something wrong with that thinking. So we want to talk about that. Well, John tells us after the fact they were on to Judas, they knew what she was doing. They had CPAs come in and do an inventory of the books, you know, a forensic audit. Oop, this guy had been stealing money. (laughs) Well, now we know what he was all about. But we know from the other writers, Matthew and Mark, that some of the other guys were influenced by Judas, and they said, yeah, that seems right to us. Then Jesus himself intervenes. He said, whoa, just a minute, zip it up. Get off this woman's back. She doesn't know it, but the Spirit of God is moving her, and what she is doing, she is doing unconsciously as a memorial for my burial. They hadn't even quite gotten it that he was going to be crucified. So she was moved, animated by the Spirit of God to do what she did, and with her, it was a pure act of worship. Well, some people like Judas, that's say, worship, worship, worship. Man, you worship God, you go out and give to the poor. That's wrong. That's not necessarily so. So, let me put that in a little bit of context here. What are the Ten Commandments? What's the summary of the Ten Commandments? Matthew chapter 22, what's the summary of it? Take it all, the Ten Commandments, put it in a pot, boil it down, and what have you got? What's it add up to? You shall what? You shall love the Lord your God. Where does it start? Loving the Lord your God. Jesus is God in the flesh. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, and all your strength. Table one. That's first priority. Then two, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Both sides need to be honored. You do not, you do not honor God if you just go out in a humanitarian spirit and try to honor the poor, the underprivileged, the deprived. That is good to do. That is good to do. That is right to do. And we do that. But it means nothing if you do not honor God. This lady had her priorities straight. Honor God first and foremost, and he was there present in his son. Honor him first. So what about my dream and my vision? 
it was not wrong. It's not what God wants me to do, apparently. But it's not wrong. You start with him, honoring and worshiping him, and then you move horizontally. Start vertically. Worship him. You do not care for man if you do not care for God. On the other hand, you do not care for God if you do not care for your fellow man. Let's never forget that, that balance, but it starts with honoring God. Sometimes there are tensions, and then there are priorities. Jesus said this. Let's get this straight. We read the text. I'm paraphrasing all of that. By the way, the poor, they're always there. They're always out there. Just go out into the streets, go everywhere. You have no trouble. If you want to help the poor, they're there. But there are first things first. And what's the first thing? Is to worship and to honor God. That's the first thing. You can help the poor anytime you want to. I'm getting ready to die. Now's the time to honor me. I will not be here forever. So let's keep our priorities straight. We began with worshiping and honoring God, but we do not leave the other off. But anytime we want to help the poor, we can go help the poor. But sometimes you don't have that opportunity. You know, we can't always, all of us, come in here on Sundays and honor God. We've got Sundays, don't we? You can go, you got all these other days of the week, you can go out there and help the poor. But this day is whose day? It's not my day, it's not your day, it's not a play day. This day is whose day? This is God's day. So on this day, yes, if you meet somebody bleeding in the street, please stop like the Good Samaritan help take care of them. They may bleed out, do something. But this is God's day. And honor God on God's day. Then go do. You can do all of that. You have all week to do that. And that's what Jesus is telling his disciples. Judas, that's what you care about. You got all week to do that. Instead, you've been a hypocrite. You're pilfering money. Let me tell you about many humanitarian organizations, and some of them are Christians. Judas was enriching himself at the expense of the the group culture. You would not believe how many of these Christian humanitarian organizations, I have a factual basis for saying this, you would not believe what their executives make. I mean, we're talking up there. And then you come down the path, up there. You wouldn't believe what their uh, ratio of distribution is, giving to the targets and taking it for the executives, both in secular terms and also in Christian terms and organizations. What's this all about, you sometimes wonder. I remember, some of you remember Ron Post, who was the founder of uh, Northwest Medical Teams. 
uh, shake this up in here and see if I can get a little more juice going. Uh, he told me one time that one of the remarkable things about Northwest medical teams in that day, in that day, it's a different deal today. He said their ratio of distribution to their targets, wherever they were, was really remarkable. 90%, if I recall, I'm a little dangerous on figures, but 90%, if I recall, went to the objectives of their mission. Sometimes, would you believe it, it's the other way around? It's the Judas principle. Take it in, stick it in. Take it in, stick it in. Oh, yeah. Here's a little of this and a little of that. Sometimes things aren't what they appear to be. Not at all what they appear to be. People lining their pockets and enriching themselves. Well, Jesus calls them on that and says, that won't fly. Let me set the record straight about the church and the poor. I do not have any statistics up here to back up what I'm going to tell you. I have my, my personal experience. I was raised in the belly in the womb of the church all the way from West Virginia to the West Coast. Went to seminary in Texas. I've seen big churches been a part of little churches. I've seen it all, I think. I'll tell you what I've never seen. This is the truth. I've never seen in my life anybody that I recognized, that I recognized by my own, I hope, biblical standards as a serious, devout disciple of Jesus Christ. I've never seen one that gave evidence of not caring about the poor. I've never been in a church who if you would show that church, and this is one of those, this is especially one of those, if you'd show that church somebody that was legitimately hurting, legitimately in need, I said legitimately, there are all kinds of frauds out there, that they didn't rise up and try to help. Northwest, Northwest Bible Training Centers, there was an appeal put out to help them out there with foodstuffs and other kinds of things. I thought you people were going to drive me crazy. Every time I walked through this building, I was tripping over toilet paper. You know? <laughs> and this, that, and the other. People were bringing in, just bringing in, because they know those people and they know that's a legitimate ministry. I've ne personally never seen it. I have never seen it. I've seen churches and I've seen individuals who walk right past those people but not those that are serious and I'm very proud of that I mean it has nothing to do with me but it has to do with the hearts of those that you recognize as having the the hallmarks of serious discipleship they always do that so far as I've ever been able to see now some have probably seen this I haven't I grew up, as you know, in West Virginia. West Virginia is neither a southern state nor is a border state. I personally 
Now, I'd have to nuance this. If you want to define racism, before you use that term, you need to define it. And what I mean by racism, people bandy these terms about, but they don't even bother to define them. They smear people up as racist. Don't even bother to define it. A racist to me is one who thinks another race, red, yellow, black, or white, or candy stripe, is inherently inferior to themselves, not as good as they are. And they have a certain level of contempt for them and discriminate deliberately against them. Now, that is what I define as a racist. Now, in the, by that definition, I have never known personally in the ranks of Christ a racist. I personally. And how old am I? 160. You know, I've never seen it. There are such people I hear, but I have never seen it in all these years. God's people are God's people. They're not perfect people, but I've seen them do a lot of other crazy and sinful things, but I've never seen that. So, after all these years, I'm proud of God's people as I know them. I don't know everything, but that's my experience. And the same way with this caring for the poor. I've certainly seen you do it in this church, and I've seen, I've seen a lot of others do it. So people like Judas had a misplaced value system, but he had an ulterior motive. So the Lord jumps up and defends this woman right off. Seven and eight said, get off her back. Pipe down. What this lady has done, she did for me. And don't you dare condemn it. The Lord knows the difference. We do things out of all kinds of different motives. I know in my own heart, you should know in your heart, there's very little that I know how to do as a human being, as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, including right up here, right now, what I'm doing. I don't know of anything that I'm so pure that I can do out of an absolutely pure motive. We're too messed up. But I do know there's integrity. I do know I want the motives to be right. You want the motives to be right. We're trying, by the grace of God, by the work of the Holy Spirit, to get it right. We want it to be right. But sometimes we just don't get it right. But the Lord honors that. He knows your heart and he knows what you're doing. And he knew what this woman was doing. This woman is doing this to honor me. I'm putting it as I would put it. Now you guys shut up and be still. Get back in your cages. So let's be very careful about that. Well, the dark side shows up very quickly. There was a tourist crowd. They uh, learned that Jesus was there. This was a big hubbub in Jerusalem now. All these people from all over the world, this was a sensation, this raising of Lazarus. And so they came running over there. They heard Jesus was back over there in Bethany. And so they came in great mobs, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. 
they wanted to see it. People are like that with anything that might have a patina of the supernatural. They want to go see it. They don't want to come to worship Jesus. They didn't want to come to honor Lazarus in any way. They came just to get eyes on the, on the prize. Well, the chief priest took counsel that they might also put Lazarus to death also. They knew that he had been resuscitated. They weren't even arguing that point, but they were trying to protect themselves. Protect themselves from what? Like I told you last week, repeat this week. They had very prized positions, social positions, political positions. And if they let this Messiah hysteria get out of control, they let the mobs, the dumb mobs get started. Jesus, 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 they let that get started. The Romans would say, you people don't have control of the situation. So we're going to take you out. We're going to come in and take charge directly. We can't let that happen. He's got to go. We're still in that world today where Jesus has got to go, no matter what. You look around, you look down through history, he's changed the face of history, he and his disciples. Nothing is remotely perfect, but you don't know how the world used to be. But he's still got to go. He's still got to be ushered out, I say, of the school system, still got to be ushered out of colleges and universities, still got to be ushered out of the military, still got to be ushered out of the government, and still got to be ushered out of your neighborhood any way possible. Some ways are not possible right now. They may be in the future. But wherever there's light, there's the dark side. It's still there, and you're going to face it. Some of you faced it already. You're going to face it in your occupations. You may be a doctor. You may be a nurse. You may be an accountant. You may be a lawyer. At some point, not too far down the line, you're going to face it and look it right in the eye. Jesus has got to go. He's got to go from your convictions. You're going to have to lose them or you're going to have to pay the piper. Get ready. Here in microcosm, this clash of light and darkness is right there. It's never going to go away until Jesus comes. But I say to anybody here who doesn't know the Savior, His mercy and His grace is there. He wants to save you. He invites you to come to him and to be forgiven of your sins. What have you got to do? Repent, which you heard me say 10,000 times, is the first step of faith. Repent and trust in him as your Lord and Savior. I can't make that step for you. You've got to make it yourself. I urge you to take that step. Come out publicly and own Jesus. Some of you may be here. You come to church a lot. You're nice people. We love you. We're glad you're here. But, you know, kind of quietly down here, you've kind of made that decision. Let me tell you something. Jesus wants you to come out publicly and own him. He died for you publicly in shame and humiliation. You won't always be able to hide. This world will smoke you out. It'll expose you or you'll have to deny him. It's better just to do it now and own him, just to come out and say, I'm with you. I own Jesus.
as my Lord and Savior. And then go out and walk with him, run with him. Be what he wants you to be, do what he wants you to do, go where he wants you to go. You've got to make that call. Can't make it for you. We tell you, you decide. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that he came and that he died for us. We thank you for these narratives, which our Father kind of typify the way life is in microcosm. Help us to see it and to say in these narratives, that is me. That's a decision that I need to make. That's a decision I don't need to be ashamed of. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.